This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for coming uh, to this. This is a six-part series, uh, and I know most of the instructors that will be uh, following me, and I think you'll be in for uh, a treat because uh, uh, a, a few of the instructors uh, have been my, uh, my professor as well, so I think I think you'll enjoy that. Um, I will point to Kathy, who's our course, course director here, so you'll see Kathy uh, later on uh, when she gives, I think, the final or second to last talk. Um, so with that, I'll get started. Um, I, I am an assistant uh, clinical professor here at UCSF, and I'm in the division of uh, occupational environmental medicine. And I wear a couple of hats. The first that I would point out is uh, what you see there, which is poison control. Uh, and some people are familiar with poison control, particularly if you've had a child or someone get into a medication, and they'll, they'll give us a call. So I work there. I also work for a, a group called the Pediatric Environmental Health Specialty Unit, or PACU, as we'll say. Uh, and that's an EPA and CDC-funded program that uh, focuses on three pieces. One is a clinician education on uh, toxic and environmental exposures, particularly for children. Uh, another is uh, public education, something like this. And then a third is clinical um, responsibility. So if someone needs to be seen, we'll see them in clinic at one of our, one of our offices here at UCSF. Uh, and so what I'll plan to do today is hopefully take you through with that mindset on some of the exposures and toxins in your everyday, uh, everyday environment. So I'll start with a quote. This is from uh, a woman named uh, Rachel Carlson, uh, Carlson, who wrote a book called The Silent Spring. And so she says, what we have to face is not an occasional dose of poison, which has accidentally got into some article of food, but a persistent and continuous poisoning of the whole human environment. And the reason I put that up there is that we are going to, in the next hour or so, I'm going to take you through poisoning, not so much uh, as a single pill or a single exposure, but exposures that are in the everyday environment. Uh, you'll have a second talk on uh, single exposures, what we call uh, sometimes the acute exposure. So this would be a, a more considered more chronic. So this is our outline. I'm going to start with just some basic definitions to explain what toxicology is, and then I'm going to roll into some important concepts that I hope will take you through the remaining uh, lectures that you have, as well as the talk that we have today. Uh, then I will give you five examples or so of toxins that are in the environment. Sort of, uh, and, and I think, I hope not to overwhelm you, but there will be uh, a fair amount of information presented there. And that usually leads to, so what can I do about that? So uh, I'll then take you through some of the pitfalls that we see when people are uh, trying to treat these. Uh, and then finally, I'll end with what can you do? Um, so that, that's going to be our, our roadmap for today. So what is toxicology? Really, it's the study uh, of uh, anything that could be a potential poison. Our role as toxicologists is hopefully to prevent the exposures, but occasionally when someone has exposures, we'll have to treat them. Uh, and so we uh, ideally spend our time on prevention, but also spend our time on education and management. 
So who is a toxicologist? You'll see uh, a number of toxicologists uh, through the, this uh, course series. Uh, people who are toxicologists come from a variety of different educational backgrounds. Uh, my background is uh, I went to medical school and then I did a residency and then a fellowship. You'll also see uh, experts in things like uh, chemistry. Next, uh, next week you'll have a talk by Dr. Wu, uh, who is a professor uh, of toxicology at UCSF and spends the majority of his time in the laboratory uh, creating new assays for ways to look for chemical exposures. Uh, and I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about some of our clinical toxicologists. When, when you call the Poison Control Center, generally you will get uh, routed to uh, someone with a, a doctoral level training in pharmacy. Uh, and they spend, uh, I would say, they are able to answer 99.9% .9 of the calls that come into poison control with advice and so forth. They're the same folks uh, who train me and who train uh, our fellows that come through the Poison Control Center. So you have people with different uh, backgrounds and, and different ways of approaching uh, these, uh, these problems um, and different uh, expertise. I get asked sometimes, uh, you know, what's a good book to learn toxicology? How can I get into this? And so one of the things that I'll tell uh, people is to, these are two important uh, references uh, that aren't, uh, that are well written um, and well known and uh, have, uh, have had pretty significant impact in the realm of uh, environmental toxicology. And, and I think most importantly are digestible. Um, so the first is from Rachel uh, Carson, who uh, I started with her. Her quote, and she described her book was called *The Silent Spring*, and she described uh, a, a town, a, a mythical town, or a, or a hypothetical town in uh, in the United States uh, that was starting to have uh, was using uh, a, a form of a pesticide. And over time, uh, was killing everything, not just pests and, and vermin, but it was also killing the birds and so forth. And eventually, you would have a, a spring without any noise, without any birds. And so the silent spring was born. Uh, the second, uh, by uh, Theo Coburn down in the left there, is Our Stolen Future. And we'll talk more about some of the things that she pointed out, uh, which were uh, chemicals that affect uh, the hormones, that look like hormones and affect human hormones and the environment. Uh, she looked at a variety of different things like infertility uh, in men, as well as uh, changes in infertility in the environment. Uh, places in, in uh, Florida where alligators had been exposed to uh, some pesticides that ended up having problems with reproduction because of uh, the exposure. So those are two, uh, two uh, references that I, I would recommend to you. Um, when you talk about toxicology, uh, there are some terms that I'd like to introduce you to. I, I'm going to try and avoid heavy jargon and, heavy jargon and, and uh, technical things, but I, I would like you to have just some basic knowledge uh, because I think it'll serve you well. So two things that we talk about when we have people, uh, when we're talking about toxicology are toxicokinetics and toxicodynamics. And really what that means is what is the body doing to this particular exposure or this particular chemical or this particular toxic? Toxin. And then what? Uh, and then when we look at toxicokinetics uh, or toxicodynamics, is what is a, uh, the poison doing to the body? Uh, this is analogous to things that we see in pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics. In fact, if you were to take a, you know a, your medication that's you know for your therapy, we're looking for the kinetics and the dynamics of that. If we were to dial up the dose uh, and get beyond what would be therapeutic, we get into the toxic realm. So there, there are things that have a 
overlap between uh, the, uh, the way medications are used and processed through the body and the way uh, toxins are used and processed. This slide is important because it looks at the toxicokinetics uh, of uh, an exposure. And so I'd like to walk you through uh, sort of in a diagram and then explain to you how we use this when we have someone who has an exposure. So uh, up top here, does that show up? Yeah, up top here, so we have, uh, there are only a few waves for you to absorb something. You can take a deep breath and inhale it. Uh, So we see an inhaler here. You can take a pill or you can swallow it. you can have it injected into you, and that's really about it. Sometimes you can have it get onto your skin and absorb through the skin, and uh, that's another another method. So once you get it uh, into, once you get it absorbed, then it goes in and, and gets distributed. So you see this comes into the lungs. The heart pumps this through the body and gets distributed throughout the body. It then goes in and gets metabolized in some uh, place. Here on this picture, we have it being metabolized in the liver. Uh, and once it's done being metabolized, it'll get excreted here out through the colon. As a toxicologist and, and one who worries about uh, human exposures, my interests are trying to prevent every step of this or modulate some step of this so as to minimize the poisoning or toxicity of something someone's been exposed to. So ideally, if I can prevent someone having an inhalation of something, I would do that. Sometimes someone has uh, had something where they've ingested it, and I really can't get it out. So I'll put something down to try and bind that thing that's in there. So sometimes we'll give people charcoal. We'll take charcoal, and and it's crushed up in a liquid format so they can absorb it that way. Sometimes we can block metabolism. We'll we'll give them a medication that will block the metabolism so that this uh, toxin doesn't uh, become... uh, even more toxic. Or sometimes we'll try and uh, help with elimination uh, so that we can minimize the time that this is in the body. So this is a diagram, uh, a chemical diagram, uh, showing just what I uh, described. So here we have a chemical uh, that comes in uh, as its parent compound, gets metabolized to something that could be particularly toxic. On one arm, we see it go through and and get some glutathione, which is a sulfur-containing compound that usually helps to detoxify things. Sometimes this particular uh, branch can get overwhelmed, and when that occurs, we have uh, this same toxin metabolite, which can no longer be detoxified, and we have some injury there. So my question uh, for you all is, can anybody tell me what this toxin is? Does anybody have any ideas? I'll give you some hints. Mercury? Mercury? Yeah, so it's not mercury. What about if I do this? Let's look at the... uh, I just highlighted some things. This is a fun party trick. What did I hear? Yeah, so you see that. So in red, you have acetaminophen. So if I were to highlight it in a different way, here's your fun party trick. What do you see there? So this is Tylenol. Yeah, so this is Tylenol. Uh, And so this is exactly how Tylenol works when it comes into the body. And I would say 95% of what we see is uh, this detoxification pathway. But when that gets overwhelmed is when we get into some of the problems with the liver. So now I'm going to take you through uh, some dose response curves. And I'm going to take you through these dose response curves so that uh, you get a a sense of uh, how different toxins can be absorbed and used in the body. 
So the first one is something that's called a monotonic, monotonic dose response curve, or monotone, meaning things don't change. So if you look at the slope of this, this thing is straight. Nothing changes here. So what we have on the x-axis here is the dose. So as I increase the dose of some sort of toxin, I'll get a, a particular kind of response. Maybe it's coughing. Maybe it's a headache. Uh, maybe it's uh, blurry vision. So this is called a, a monotonic dose response curve. As I increase the dose, I get increased response. Um, now, it turns out that that's not the only kind of dose response curve that's out there. There's something called the non-monotonic, or meaning this thing changes. So you're seeing a change in the slope. And this is particularly relevant to something that we're going to be talking about later, which is called an endocrine-disrupting chemical. It's important because one, uh, when it was first described, people said, well, there's really only one kind of dose response curve. All I know about is this linear one. Well, it turns out that there is evidence that there's also uh, this, this non-monotonic dose response curve. And this is important because one of the things we usually talk about as toxicologists is it's the dose that makes the poison. If I give you some, uh, a really big dose, that's what's going to cause you a problem. But if we look at uh, children and people of reproductive age, what we're really Really worried about is timing. And so one of the things we talk about is timing makes the poison. So uh, when you look at endocrine disrupting chemicals, you can see that you can have a, a dose response at pretty low levels or at really high levels. Uh, and this is in contrast to that, that linear dose response curve you saw. Another non-monotonic dose response curve is this sort of classic U-shape. Uh, and this is one that we see uh, with things like uh, essential uh, nutrients such as vitamins or essential metals. So at low doses, you can have death, right? If you don't have enough vitamin A, then you can have death. At really high doses, you can also have death. Um, or you can have at least some, some problem, uh, some health problem. And in between is where we're at, which is where, you know, where we want to be homeostasis. Um, and so if you take just a piece of that, uh, there's something called hormesis. Uh, and so I'll blow that up for you. So hormesis is where we look at, and this is debated in the toxicology realm, but where you look at a potential uh, beneficial dose, and then as you go up, it becomes more of a toxic dose. And then this is just a summary of all of those different uh, dose response curves. So the reason this is important is different chemicals act a bit differently. And so it's, it help, it's helpful from a toxicologic standpoint to know which chemical am I dealing with, what kind of dose response curve do I need to think about, uh, and what can this mean for someone's exposure. One of the things that we worry about uh, with uh, toxic exposure is, is, is this going to cause cancer? And so this is a very simplified diagram of how cancer can occur. With things with toxic exposures being uh, among the things that can start the cancer. So we know that we have toxic uh, chemicals that can be what's called an initiator that would take uh, a group of normal cells or one normal cell and be able to make it uh, change the genetics of it such that it's now an abnormal cell. And then we know that we have chemicals that will not only take that abnormal cell and help it proliferate. Uh, and so, and we know we have chemicals that will do one one of those pieces that will do another one of those pieces is that it'll do both of those. And as those uh, then proliferate, uh, you'll start to see these abnormal cells grow and grow and grow such that they grow outside of where they started and go to the rest of the body, and that's what we call metastasis. So it's these two initiation and promotion pieces that we worry about with toxic exposures. 
The same is true for something called a teratogen. So a teratogen uh, is from the Greek uh, teratos, which is monster. And uh, what this uh, describes uh, initially was the gross anatomic changes, me- gross meaning uh, seen from afar. Uh, and so if you were to have someone have an, uh, a child, let's say, have an exposure to a particular chemical early in life, they may have a finding that you can see. Maybe it was a cleft palate or maybe it was a shortening of their limbs or maybe it was something to do with the way their heart uh, pumps. Um, and so the issue that we have is that there's insufficient data to know which of these chemicals will do this. Um, and so we take a, a, this precautionary approach uh, that we say, well, we really don't know when and where we'll have some of these uh, overt changes. So we'd really like to avoid all of those in pregnancy. The important piece uh, is, to this is that because we have gross findings, uh, people will say, oh, I can put my finger on that. I can see that this has changed uh, a limb or an organ. But there are plenty of things that we know won't change the actual what you see on uh, when you look at someone. So things like autism or seizure disorders don't change any other way the actual anatomic uh, setup of the body is, but we know they have uh, particular important outcomes, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. So I've taken you through some of the basics of toxicology that I think will give you uh, a good sort of uh, foundation as we go through and talk about some of these toxins. The next, uh, for probably the next half an hour or so, I'm going to take you through uh, a variety of different toxins that are in our everyday environment. So we'll start with arsenic. So I think most people, when they think of arsenic, don't think of arsenic and apple juice. They think about uh, a poisoning, uh, what we would say, this acute poisoning of if you were to take this, they'd keel over in front of you, which can happen uh, with the right dose of arsenic. But it's also uh, worrying because it has some uh, long-term effects in people who get low doses over long periods of time. So you may remember in 2011 there was a controversy that was stirred up by a television show by Dr. Oz where he and some of his staff went and did some testing of commercial, uh, commercially available products, particularly apple juice. And what they found was, uh, that, or what they reported was that there were high levels of uh, arsenic in apple juice, and this, uh, this caused a, a big public concern. So much so that uh, the FDA uh, put out two letters basically um, uh, criticizing the methods that Dr. Oz and his staff had used to look at some of this apple juice. That then turned in in January of 2012 where Consumer Reports did something similar with a bit more uh, robust uh, uh, testing. Uh, And what that uh, then started uh, was uh, a number of media reports looking and wondering, is there too much arsenic in apple juice? So it brings, it brings the question of what is arsenic. So arsenic is an element that's in the Earth's crust. Um, like a lot of the elements that we see, particularly from a toxic standpoint, we think of these in sort of uh, different, as uh, I, different types of chemicals of the same element. So you have, in this case, inorganic arsenic and organic arsenic. Both arsenic, but have with different chemical properties. Inorganic arsenic is the one that we worry about because it's known to be pretty highly toxic and hit a, a number of cellular processes, including uh, inducing things like cancer. Uh, and it's one of the things that's regulated, as you'll see, particularly in the water, uh, by the EPA. 
There's something else called organic arsenic, which has varying levels of toxicity. It used to be thought that it had no toxicity, and now we're finding that there may be some issues uh, with the different uh, species or types of organic arsenic. Uh, and so because this is two differentiation uh, of these species, when Dr. Oz first did his uh, testing, he didn't separate these two out, and that was where the FDA uh, started to criticize him and said, you really need to look at what it means uh, for inorganic arsenic, because that's what, what causes some problems. And it turns out that it's not just arsenic in apple juice, but it's in a variety of different things. So what are the effects? You know, the things that we think about from there's some old movies, if you look at arsenic and old lace, or, or if you look at um, things that you'll see on uh, even, you know, more uh, contemporary things like Law and Order, somebody will poison their neighbor with this, uh, and they will have a, a variety of different effects uh, that can be acute, can cause somebody's heart uh, to stop, can, uh, eventually cause them to stop breathing. Of a more public health concern is what does it mean for someone to have uh, an ongoing exposure, either low dose or high dose? Uh, one of the sort of biggest uh, poisonings that ever occurred was thanks to the United States government um, in Bangladesh. So in Bangladesh, there was a thought that we uh, would go in and try and uh, reduce uh, some morbidity and mortality from the drinking water that was laced with uh, a variety of things like fecal material and unclean drinking water. So at that time, we were drilling holes in the in the water there, uh, in the in the Earth's crust, and bringing up water. These uh, uh, wells ended up having a lot of arsenic in them, uh, and so it's it's uh, characterized as one of the largest mass poisonings, and it goes on to this day in Bangladesh. It was uh, no fault of the U.S. government. It, at the time, I, people didn't uh, think about testing those wells for arsenic, but now we know in, in pockets of Bangladesh where there are thousands of wells, uh, people have higher risks of skin cancer and kidney cancer and bladder cancer. Uh, so because of that, uh, arsenic uh, is regulated in our drinking water. And so we have a cutoff here, which is called 10 parts per billion. That PPB means there's one part of arsenic per billion parts of water. And that's what's regulated in, our, in the water system by the EPA. Uh, so if you have a public water system like we do in San Francisco, you can't have more than 10 parts per billion. If you have a private well, however, you as the owner, you as the person living there is responsible for getting uh, that arsenic tested uh, and then remediating that water. So there are about 2 million people in the United States who have wells uh, that are above this action level. So what does that mean? What it means is that uh, the, this uh, 10 parts per billion was set from a regulatory standpoint that said, you know, if we allow this, uh, if the population is allowed to have 10 parts per billion, we think we'll have about three more cancers per, hundred, per thousand people. So you can see what that would mean if we were to raise or lower that threshold. What's the rate in Europe? Uh, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure what their... What their um, what their regulatory, um, what the regulatory levels are. Uh, so you can see what it would mean to raise or lower this usually cost. If we were to try and lower uh, what the regulatory amount would be for uh, arsenic in the water, let's say to five parts per billion, there's some cost associated with that. So we as a society have accepted three, or, uh, three more cancers per thousand in drinking water. 
Well, is drinking water the same as apple juice or as rice products? Um, and so one, one of the things that this has caused is that, you know, people drink a lot more water in general than they do apple juice. Or, or they drink a lot more water and get more arsenic from water than they do from rice, in adults at least. So what that started was uh, starting to look at uh, what are, is the arsenic content in some of these different foods. So you'll see that it's, uh, here we've got it listed in, in this funny-looking U is a micro in Greek, so it's a microgram. And so what you start to see is where arsenic is found in these different foods. And what you can see is you could start to have a fairly significant load depending on what your diet is, uh, and particularly if you are a child who, ha- who weighs less. All of these are uh, products that uh, children are exposed to on a daily basis. It's not uncommon for children to have, uh, let's say, as their first uh, solid-type food, uh, some sort of rice-based material. Um, and so depending on uh, what's going on at home, uh, there are uh, kids who could be getting significant amounts of arsenic. So is this a concern? Well, uh, there have been a couple of studies that look at how much arsenic is in uh, the food supply and what it means uh, for uh, the population. So looking at the study that was done in 2008, we estimate, they estimated that you get about 17 micrograms per day per kilogram from drinking water that has 10 parts per billion. But if you look at uh, a child who would be uh, being raised on uh, baby rice cereal, they could be getting a bit more than that, 0.2. One. So there is a concern that there, if you have a population of children who are getting this exposure, that there are going to be uh, increasing the risk for them to be getting cancer later in life. One of our colleagues here at UCSF then went and looked at the uh, amount of intake of rice in different uh, ethnicities within the United States. So there's a, uh, a population a study that's done every few years, the National Health uh, pop, uh, survey that's uh, conducted by the CDC. And they look at a variety of uh, metrics. They look at the average height, the average weight, the average blood pressure. They look at things in your blood. They look at toxins in your urine. One of the things that they ask is, how much do you, how much coffee do you drink? How much rice uh, do you eat? And so what we, uh, what we saw was that there's a correlation between uh, different ethnicities and the amount of rice that's, eat, uh, that's eaten in these ethnicities. So not surprising then, when you look at uh, people who have increase in the amount of uh, rice that they're eating, particularly brown rice, you start to see increases in arsenic in, the, in, in their urine. So what you have on the bottom here is the uh, amount of uh, rice intake uh, by the amount of urine, uh, arsenic in the urine. What does brown rice it's a good question. Thank you. So you just uh, brought me to uh, why does brown rice have more? There, there, the particular architecture of the husk of the uh, of brown rice uh, concentrates some of the arsenic that's in soil, and so brown rice in particular has more arsenic than something like white rice. Uh, and so when you get uh, white rice, which has had the brown uh, husk removed, uh, you'll have less amount of uh, arsenic in there. It's also dependent on where uh, the rice comes from. Uh, if if the rice has been in soil that was previously had uh, something like arsenic used as pesticide, pesticide, that rice will generally have more arsenic than a place that didn't have arsenic used as a pesticide. So we know that uh, South Central uh, United States has more arsenic in their soil than, let's say, California. Uh, we asked for organic rice if it meets, uh, meets the criteria, but it depends on the soil that it was grown in.
So what can you do? So the FDA, uh, after all of this, uh, there have been some uh, thoughts about regulating the amount of arsenic that's in foodstuffs. And so uh, the FDA and the American Academy of Pediatrics, the AAP that I have up there, came out with very similar recommendations, which was to vary the diet and and to have a well-balanced diet, something that's uh, generally advocated by uh, public health experts. Uh, And to be cognizant uh, of the amount of rice that a child could be getting, particularly early stages, uh, as well as being culturally sensitive to the different ethnicities who may have this as a large component of their, of their diet. So now I'll take you to lead. So this is uh, a bit of a different story. This is a lady that we saw. Uh, it's a 32-year-old lady who comes in with a long history of abdominal pain, and she had been seen at a number of different hospitals. She came uh, to our hospital here at Parnassus saying, you know, I just feel like my insides are being squeezed, and I think they're being squeezed from the inside out. Uh, and she's had all of this uh, nausea and feels like she's going to throw up. She's had um, headaches and this sort of generalized fatigue. This has been going on for years, and she's gotten a whole host and list of diagnoses. As part of her workup, she gets an X-ray, uh, and I'll orient you here. So um, this is all pretty normal. You have uh, this is her spine here. She's got some gas in her bowel. These are her hips. And then she's got these two little round things that normally aren't on any x-ray. So these are two radio, what we would call radio-opaque pills. So we took those pills, and we asked her, well, what do you take? And she said, well, I take, because of all my health problems, I take a lot of herbal supplements, and I also take Ayurvedic uh, medications. And we said, oh, well, well, can we see them? So she brought them in, and we uh, put them down onto, this is an X-ray uh, table. So uh, what you see in those crossbars there is how, what the X-ray technologist normally uses as a way to aim their X-ray beam. Uh, and so then we said, okay, well, we, it takes a while to do a lead test. And we, we thought we were dealing with lead, and we were trying to figure out, well, how can we see how much lead, or can we even detect which one of these is the culprit? So then what we did was we took the X-ray. And so you can see, if superimposed, which of these do you think has the most lead? It's that right there. And so these are chock full of lead. So it turns out that uh, lead is ubiquitous in the environment. It has both, as I mentioned, in some of these supplements, uh, but it's also in a variety of other things, most famously, in, I think, in the, in the public's mind, in paint. Uh, lead has some great properties, particularly if you want to use it uh, for pigment because it doesn't corrode. So if you, want to have, uh, if you want to paint your home and you don't want to have to paint it every five years, you can have something that has lead in it and that it'll stick around. The problem is, is lead sticks around and it doesn't go anywhere forever, right? It's an element that will be around. Uh, and it has caused a number of problems uh, for centuries uh, and it's probably the first uh, occupational toxin uh, that was recorded because of the, uh, how it was used. So where is lead? It's in a variety of different things. Uh, this is a, a, a diagram of all, all different uses that it's been in. Uh, these are some of the herbal and home uh, supplements that we've talked about, some different paint and so forth. Uh, this is probably the most common uh, outdoor paint. 
in places that have uh, been built, particularly before 1979, all the paint that was used was leaded. And so homes that were built prior to that all have lead paint. In general, most of that paint has never come off. It's just been painted over. Uh, and the same is true for the soil that's in and around that place. So if you live in a city that has majority of the homes being built before 1979, like this one, you have a pretty high lead burden in the city. Uh, and so it's something to be aware of if you are uh, a family doctor or a pediatrician in the city thinking about who, who would I want to screen for this lead exposure. Uh, some other places that we'll see, we have some young girls soldering here, doing some jewelry making. Uh, we have people doing stained glass windows. Uh, this is a common one, particularly when people are about to have a child. They know they're going to have their child and they, they want to get ready for it. Uh, and so they will uh, start cleaning up the home. Maybe they'll do some demolition, all the while getting exposed to lead that was in the paint. Uh, this is an interesting New York Times uh, article that uh, was then followed by a study uh, that looked at the lead content in urban chickens. Uh, it turns out that there's, we know we have higher lead levels in the soil in urban areas, but not only for lead paint, but up until the 70s, lead was used in gasoline. Uh, and so uh, there's that lead uh, deposit and burden is still in uh, urban centers. And so if you look at uh, soil in urban areas versus soil from uh, farm, we know they have higher lead. And so chickens will have higher lead levels. One of the only uh, regulated uh, foodstuffs by the FDA has been candy. There was candy that was being brought into the United States that, had, that contained lead, and most of the people who were eating this tend to be young children. And so uh, the FDA came out with guidelines on how much lead can be allowable in candy. Um, one of the things that's confusing to people is uh, why is it uh, that I was told that when I was younger, my lead level was safe, and now you're telling me that there's, there's really no safe lead level. Lead has historically been, from a public health standpoint, been in two different silos. We have adult lead, which usually falls into people who are working in an occupational realm. Uh, that, science, or that regulatory um, uh, guidance hasn't changed since 1979 and is unlikely to change uh, because it re it's, uh, would require a, uh, a passage of Congress uh, to change the regulations by Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And so we allow adults uh, who are working with lead to have a lead level of 50. That's what's written in the current, uh, the current lead standard. And that's unlikely to change, although there's some movement to try and get that changed within California. Now, uh, in the 1960s, if you were a child, uh, you were told that you're, you could have a lead level of 60 before you were at a level of concern. Over the years, the science has borne out that really there is no safe lev lead level, and that's what you start to see. And so depending on when you had your lead level, when your child had their lead level, you were told, well, you were at a level that was okay. Now we say there's really no safe uh, level of lead because we look at the epidemiolo epidemiologic studies that show children who have lead levels, even what we would consider low lead levels, levels that were before, below this threshold of, let's say, 10 micrograms that's in your blood per deciliter, or 5, which is not what it's set at now, even at those levels below 5 and below 10, uh, are considered harmful. So this is a diagram that's put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics that looks at uh, the cost of lead burden on children. Uh, and so it starts off with saying there, is no, there really is no safe lead level in children. 
The annual cost to the United States is probably around $50 billion, and I'll show you where some of that number comes from. Uh, the, the cost uh, savings uh, to the U.S. Um, were we to remediate all of this uh, is pretty impressive. For every dollar you put in, you could get $221 back. So pretty uh, impressive statistics that come out of this. So what are the societal costs from this ongoing exposure? This study, which has been done, uh, looked at a few times and repeated, uh, took uh, lead levels of mothers uh, who, uh, when they were pregnant, and then graphed them against the child's arrest rate. So uh, they had all of this in a database and looked and said, okay, well, what, if, what was your lead level when your mom was pregnant, and how likely were you to get arrested 21, some up to where 20 uh, years later? And what they found was when mom had higher lead levels, the child was more likely to be involved with the police or have uh, problems um, in school. Uh, now, uh, this controlled for things like socioeconomic status, where we know that children who have higher lead levels tend to come from lower socioeconomic status because they tend to live in housing uh, that's not been uh, either uh, kept up or is not as something that their parents have the ability to change. So uh, looking at the cost of this in terms of uh, arrest rates or learning disabilities is somewhere on the order of 200 now, you know, close to $300 billion a year. So one question I get asked a lot is, so what happened in Flint? Is that something that's going to happen here? So to give you a brief history of what happened in Flint, Michigan, uh, was there was a change in the use of the, the type of water that was being used. Uh, they were using it from one source and then decided to go from another source. During that time, they had some an anti-corrosion uh, chemical that they were using that they decided not to use. Because of their, their pipes are still leaded uh, and they were no longer using this anti-corrosion, well, what they started to see was higher lead levels. Uh, and so what they noticed was that if you have a cutoff of five, and our units are micrograms per deciliter in a child, if that's your cutoff, before the lead, uh, before they changed, they had about 2.5% uh, of children were uh, had a level above five. And after the change, they had a 5%. So they had a doubling in the number of children. So when you have a doubling of this, you can imagine what that means from a societal cost. Uh, this is just a diagram of how things work in Flint, Michigan, where the lead that's brought, the water that's brought into the home is by a leaded pipe, uh, and then there are different connections that can be connected to the home. Fortunately, in San Francisco, bless you, um, fortunately in San Francisco, there are no uh, leaded pipes. In probably in the early 90s to late 80s, this, all of the infrastructure in San Francisco was replaced, such as there is no lead pipes. There is, however, uh, homes that have been built uh, prior to 1979. I got this slide from the health department here, and I asked, and what they did was they looked at the percentage of homes that were built prior to 1979 as a a surrogate for homes that would have uh, be a place where a child could get exposed to lead. So you can imagine if you're a child in San Francisco, there's really no place that you could go that you wouldn't be at risk for this. So we use this in our uh, with our training with our pediatricians to say, if you're a child in San Francisco, this is someone you would want to screen for lead. 
I wanted to call your attention to some things that have gone on in the media that have affected us from a toxic standpoint. As you've probably heard, some of the pharmaceutical companies are taking these rarely used drugs and increasing the costs of them. We ran into this uh, re uh, recently, about a year ago. We had a child who had a pretty high lead level, and we were going to go and give them uh, an antidote, what we call a chelator, which means it goes in and pulls some of this stuff out. And so we called uh, and said, okay, we'd like to give this child this. And the hospital said, oh, we don't stock that anymore. And so I'm a toxicologist on the phone. I said, what do you mean you don't stock this anymore? This is a poison. There's a child who's poisoned. I need the antidote. And they said, well, um, the price is so expensive, we can't stock it. So we started doing some digging, and we looked at what the cost was to treat a child for five days back in 2008. And it was $464, which seems like, okay, that might be sort of uh, you know, a reasonable amount to, to treat a child. Uh, by the time by 20, 2014, the price to treat a child for the same amount of time uh, jumped to twenty six thousand uh, dollars, with a price increase of about seven thousand percent. So what happened? What happened was uh, there was one uh, small manufacturer of this antidote that got bought out by a much larger manufacturer, uh, and for some reason they felt that they had to increase the price. As part of uh, our sort of due diligence, uh, we then uh, knew that this particular drug manufacturer was going to go uh, before Congress. They were called before Congress last January. You may remember some of this. There was a big storm uh, that had delayed some of it. So we had uh, a letter that went to Elijah Cummings uh, that highlighted all of these things. Um, and it turned out that this particular manufacturer, Valiant, uh, was, uh, who had, uh, who was raising these prices. Uh, sometime later, Later, they uh, were then indicted. Um, the price hasn't changed on this particular antidote, so we've gotten creative on some of the ways that we treat and some of the medicines we use. I'll now take you to something called a polychlorinated biphenyl. I get, uh, there are questions that people ask about, well, what are these other uh, toxins in our environment? You know, I've heard about lead. Are there other things? And I'll say, yeah, there are generally a lot of things. Uh, and there are things that the EPA knows about, that they see they are well known in the public, uh, sort of public health literature. So polychlorinated biphenyls are great from a, sort of an insulation standpoint because they don't burn. They've got a lot of chlorine on them. So it uh, makes it great for putting them around electrical devices that you don't want to burn. They were phased out in the 70s because we started to realize these things are everywhere. They're in all kinds of things. And uh, they may be causing a variety of things, including cancer or developmental problems. Uh, the issue is, is that in a lot of these electrical uh, transmitters, uh, transistors and such, they're still in a variety of things. Uh, and they're still in particular places like school. It wasn't just in uh, these transistors that they're in, but they're also in things like caulking. They're in... Um, old lighting materials or in a variety of things. And uh, they, they will start to leak or uh, disintegrate in terms of the physical structure and can uh, aerosolize and be out in the schools. So we know that these are in uh, a majority of school, or at least a good portion of schools that were built between 1950 and 1980. So although that, that chemical has been banned, it persists for a long period of time. Um, as I mentioned, not only do these things uh, exist because they're leaking out of uh, these transistors or out of caulk and things like that, but they get, bio, they get magnified in the food chain. And so we see this in a variety of different things. We see it in uh, animals that are being uh, fed different uh, grain from uh, other animals uh, or from other uh, areas that uh, have uh, this contamination. We see, we see the same thing with farm-raised fish. They're being uh, fed grain or 
our foodstuffs from uh, contaminated places. The problem is, is that these things don't go away and they tend to build up in the body. And so you see this diagram where you have here where this, these continue uh, through, through the life cycle. So what are the, these effects? Uh, the, the big one that uh, people will notice is something called chloroacne, which I'll show you a picture of. But you can see some of the other things that we were worried about there, particularly decreases in IQ in children, uh, decreased birth weight, uh, and maybe some endocrine-disrupting properties uh, that we'll talk about. So this next picture, I, I promise not to t show too many graphic photos, but this is, uh, anybody want to take a guess at the age and the gender of this person? This is, a, this is a young woman. Um, so this is a young woman who uh, got exposed to a pretty high dose of this. And this is uh, uh, what her back, this is chloracne, um, and this is what her back is going to look like uh, forever. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really go away. So we're on to our last set uh, of chemicals here, which are endocrine-disrupting chemicals. And so this is a class of chemicals that goes in and can disrupt the, the way hormones function. So I'll give you a little background on hormones. And so if you look at this, this uh, uh, diagram down here in the bottom, uh, on your bottom left, uh, my left, your right, um, is you'd have a hormone like estrogen that would go into something we call a receptor. So a receptor is just, uh, as it sounds, it's some sort of uh, place that a chemical will go and will cause something to happen. It'll turn a cell on, it'll turn a cell off, it'll tell some, uh, it functions as a messaging system. So estrogen uh, ha is a sort of perfect lock and key fit that causes some of these uh, downstream effects. But you can have other things that will come in, and so the analogy here is this uh, paperclip, where this paperclip can come in and hit some of those same pieces and cause some of that same uh, chemical messaging to go on. So uh, BPA is one that you may have heard of. It's something that's in uh, a lot of plastics and plasticizers. Uh, and so if you look at what this BPA, this bisphenol A, looks like from a chemical structure, it looks pretty similar to what estradiol looks like. So uh, when you're out at the market and you're looking to buy things, you'll see things that say BPA-free, maybe I can buy this. Well, it turns out that uh, what, what the manufacturers have done because of the health effects uh, that have been recognized with BPA, they've switched those out for BPB, BPC, BPF. So you need some sort of plasticizer in these plastics to make them malleable. So they've just changed uh, one or two of the molecules on this. And so when you see this BPA-free, it's true there's no BPA in there, but now it's been replaced with another probably as equal or more uh, potent as what the original was. Um, but it, it's an artificial estrogen that was developed, and it was similar to uh, something called DES, which was a, a, uh, an artificial hormone that was given to uh, women in the um, late 60s, I believe, uh, to try and, uh, and help with, uh, to prevent miscarriages. Turned out that it, uh, this DES, which also looks like estrogen, uh, caused cancer both in the mom, but also interestingly caused cancer in the offspring, particularly in the female offspring. Uh, so this BPA has very similar effects. There's a bunch of it uh, out here because we use lots of plastic, and it's found in nearly, uh, you know, nearly every woman uh, who's uh, of reproductive age in the United States. 
So that's one version of an endocrine disruptor. There are others. In California, uh, there is a flame retardant that was added to a variety of foam uh, because the thought was if you can put a flame retardant and someone uh, had a match, uh, it would slow down uh, the burning of these uh, of these things, particularly in things like couches, although it's in a variety of things, these different things. PBDE sounds a lot like PCB, and the reason is is because they, they look pretty similar. Uh, they uh, they're, uh, have similar chemical makeup uh, and also cause similar hormonal problems, so in a, a variety of different um, uh, consumer products. So if you look at uh, something like a thyroid hormone that you have here, this is what a thyroid hormone looks like. So you see these two kind of ring structures connected in the middle by, by this oxygen. Well, if you look at uh, this PBDE, it looks pretty similar. And so when you're looking at these molecular structures or if the body's looking at these, you can see how what would have been a perfect lock and key fit might also work for that kind of screw, screwy paper clip. And so you can think of these PBDEs as screwy paper clips. Same with PC. Pesticides. There's been a, a lot of concern about uh, pesticides, and so people ask, well, you know, should I eat organic, and what's the deal with pesticides? So I wanted to give you one specific example that uh, has been uh, researched here at UCSF. Uh, for those of you familiar, there's something called uh, Parkinson's disease or Parkinsonism. And so uh, you may see this uh, in someone who's walking where they'll have a, a sort of a fixed facial expression, may have uh, difficult with speech, rigidity in the way they walk. They may have what's classically termed a shuffling gait, may not be able to uh, move their arms like you normally would see with their walking, and a sort of rigid posture. And uh, there's some thought that uh, there's some injury that happens in one part of the brain where a lot of these movements are coordinated. So one study that was done uh, here from UCSF was looking at the risk of Parkinson's disease with people who used pesticides. Now, as a toxicologist, this class term of pesticides isn't very descriptive for me because I like to know what the exact molecule is and what it is that they're being exposed to. And so in this study, they looked at two pesticides, one called Paraquat and something else called Permethrin. And what they did was that because they had uh, farmers who knew what they were working with in most parts of, uh, in all of uh, the United States, if you apply pesticides as a, as a pesticide applicator as part of your job, you have to keep records of all that because the EPA wants to know what, you're, um, what you are using. So uh, they looked at uh, farmers who were using these pesticides and asked them uh, questions, do you use gloves uh, when you apply these pesticides? And it turned out that the, the people who used gloves had lower rates of Parkinson's disease for these two particular chemicals than people who didn't use gloves. And, it, and they did it again. Uh, they looked at a, a similar study. Uh, where they looked at people where they tested their genetics. So you remember that glutathione thing that I was showing you earlier that's a sulfur donor that helps to detoxify things? Well, some people don't produce as much glutathione as, uh, as others because of their genetic makeup. And so those are called uh, this GSTT1 null, null, meaning they don't make as much. And so they looked at their risk of uh, developing Parkinson's disease and found it was a, a, about 0.7 or 70% uh, more likely to, to be able to develop Parkinson's than, say, someone who doesn't have this. Then they looked at that same, uh, that same pesticide that I talked to you about, Paraquat, in people who didn't have this defect and found that they had about 2.6 or 
260 times more likely to have this, uh, 260% more likely to have Parkinsonism. And then what they did was looked at people who had both this uh, deficiency in making this particular detoxification and had used Paraquat. And so you would think that it would be 1.7 plus 2.6, right? Well, what they found was that it wasn't just an additive effect, but a mul multiplicative effect, such that uh, if you were unfortunate enough to have both this uh, genetic um, makeup and uh, this chemical exposure, you would be you know, nearly a thousand times more likely to have this, uh, to have Parkinson's disease. Not a pesticide, but a phenomenon that uh, we are familiar with most, f most uh, uh, which most comes up most commonly with lung cancer. So if you look at people who have a, a no exposure to, let's say, cigarette smoke, they have some risk of getting, uh, of, uh, getting lung cancer. If they uh, have asbestos exposure alone, they have about a five-time, five-fold risk. If they have smoking alone, they have about a 10-time risk. So you would think, okay, well, five and 10, then maybe I'll get you around 15. Well, uh, this, uh, this five plus 10 doesn't equal 15, it equals 15. It's a multiplicative effect. And so we know with some of these toxic exposures, we have a much higher increase in disease from these, uh, from these interactions. So I've taken you through some chemicals uh, or toxins that are, are of concern. The next thing I'm going to take you through are some of the common pitfalls that I see uh, when people are referred to toxicology here at UCSF. Um, these pitfalls are, fall into a variety of different things, people who are trying to uh, treat something uh, or people who are trying to prevent something. So the first thing that I'll talk about is treatment, which uh, can be in a variety of different antidotes. It would be ideal if you just had chemical and then you had antidote and we could just match up a table and then I could give you a medicine for every chemical that's out there. That rarely occurs, and I would say only occurs with a handful of things. Um, but oftentimes, when we, by the time we've seen someone, they've either been treated by uh, someone or have been taking a particular medication so that they can uh, self-treat these things. And oftentimes, as a toxicologist, what we're seeing is the toxicity of that antidote that they're trying to treat themselves with. And so we will tell them, stop all that. Let's see if there's something else we can do. In that handful of cases, if you have something that I know this can treat and, I, and will tolerate the toxicity from it, then I'd advise you to do it. But you'll see a variety of different things, uh, particularly that are aimed at the public, of detoxification, uh, colon cleansing, um, chelation remedies that all have a variety of uh, toxicities of their own. Um, I have uh, cyanide and hydrogen peroxide listed there because cyanide uh, had at one point been used as a chemotherapy and still used in some uh, sort of uh, supplemental um, or integrative uh, medical practices. Um, and so occasionally we'll have cyanide exposures. Uh, and hydrogen peroxide, which most of us think about when you go to the pharmacy, you get that little uh, brown bottle which contains about 3% um, uh, hydrogen peroxide. Thanks to the internet, you can buy things up to 30%. Uh, and this stuff liberates huge amounts of oxygen. And so we've had people who will ingest this and not only have things like corrosive burns, but will have huge amounts of oxygen uh, come out inside their body such that they'll get a stroke, not what, from what you would typically think of a stroke like from a blood clot or from a piece of cholesterol, but from so much oxygen themselves. What's that? No. No, hydrogen peroxide is not carcinogenic. 
so uh, then that brings us to testing. The reason that I put testing on here is that there are a variety of uh, uh, outfits that will sell all different types of testing. They'll sell you hair testing, nail testing. They'll test your different varieties of excreta. Uh, and all of this will come with a price tag. Most insurance companies don't cover it because uh, the science behind it is pretty limited. Um, and then there's environmental testing. So I wanted to show you something that comes to me quite often where someone will say, I have some uh, indoor airspace. I think I have toxic mold in my home. So what I did was I paid this testing company uh, to uh, test my home. And so they'll pay thousands of dollars to have uh, some uh, basic uh, biologic samples run. So what I've highlighted are some uh, a variety of molds that we know can be toxic to humans. Uh, and their concentrations. And so oftentimes, sometimes I'll only get one number and they'll just show me what was inside their house. And they'll say, look, doc, this is really high. I think this is really bad. And so my first question will be is, what is it outside your home? And they'll say, if they don't have it, then I'm out of luck. But if, if they do have it, then I say, look, you know, it's about the same outside of your home as it's in as it is inside of your home. And I generally don't have much interest in the different species because generally it's the damp conditions that we're worried about as opposed to it's this species of mold that's causing me problems. Now there are uh, other cases where we're uh, concerned about species of mold um, uh, infecting the body and things like that. Uh, but what we'll say is, okay, well, let me look at this uh, and show you, you know, what's really causing this problem is the damp indoor airspace. And so I can save you all that money, or I could have saved you all that money and said, you know, I don't think you need to have all uh, of this testing done. Let's just fix this damp indoor airspace. Uh, and sometimes they're disappointed because they've just spent thousands of dollars uh, on having some of these things done. Some of these outfits that will test uh, your excreta and such will do things like, I, I put an example here of uh, urine mycotoxin testing. So they'll take your urine and they'll run it for a toxin. Turns out that mycotoxins are in all of our foodstuffs. They're in peanuts, they're in grains, they're in uh, you know, wheat and, and things like that. So much so that the FDA has a regulation about how much can be in your grain. Um, and so uh, what, we will, what will come to us is someone will say, look, this is uh, really toxic stuff I have in my house. I have toxic mold. Here's the environmental test. And here's a test uh, of my urine that shows that this is here. And I'll say, you know, it's hard really to put all that together because how much, do you, how much peanuts do you eat? Or how much grain do you eat? Or how much do you eat in general? Because this is all in our food stuff. Uh, and so we'll try and, and steer them clear, or at least talk to them about what this means, both because this is not just a, a burden or drain from a psychologic standpoint, but this can get really expensive for patients. And so if, uh, if there are uh, something to focus on, uh, I'd rather focus on getting, uh, getting them healthy than on these testing. So why this all matters. So uh, these small effects uh, can have large impacts on a population. So what you have here is sort of a, a bell curve of the IQ of a population. So the mean being, uh, being 100. And so you have some percentage of people, they're going to fall into this intellectual disability. Um, and then you're going to have another set of people that are going to be in the, in the gifted category. 
now, if you take that mean and you take the whole population and you shift it over by five points because they've had the entire population has had an exposure to a variety of chemicals, let's see what this does to our uh, intellectual disability. So we went from 8 million, which you saw before, to 12.5 million that are uh, moving to this intellectual disability. But we also lose uh, you know, over 3 million people who are in the gifted piece. And so we have a, a pretty uh, remarkable uh, increase in folks who are in this uh, intellectual disability category and a lot less folks that are in this gifted category. So what we're seeing is that uh, one out of six children are being diagnosed with uh, developmental disability. I've highlighted one of the programs that we have here at UCSF called the Program on Reproductive Health in the Environment, or PRE, which is part of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Uh, and they look at a variety of things uh, in pregnant women and then follow uh, their children out. As I'm sure you are aware, we've had uh, increases in the diagnosis of autism, and nobody has an exact reason why. There have been a lot of different hypotheses. As a toxicologist, one of my concerns are all these environmental exposures. I've talked to you about a majority of the things that are on this uh, that are on the slide. We've talked about mercury, we've talked about PCBs, the flame retardants, pesticides, and arsenic all of which are found in over 80% of pregnant women and all of which are known to decrease uh, IQs in children. So now I've scared you. Um, so what can you do about all this? Um, so I like this picture because uh, it oftentimes reflects what we are doing as clinicians. Uh, so what you see here is you see two uh, clinicians in white coats cleaning up this mess of all this stuff that's on the floor. And in the background, you have a faucet that's on that's allowing all this stuff to overflow. And so oftentimes, one of the things that we want to get to is turning that faucet off so we can stop cleaning up this mess. Uh, one way to do that is to put these product warning labels on things. In California, we have something called Prop 65, and you'll see it in a variety of buildings. It'll say, uh, but, you know, when you go to get gas, it'll say there, um, uh, there's something here that causes uh, cancer. You see it when you walk into restaurants. Uh, if you talk to most of the lay public, uh, this is, ends up being, you know, of questionable relevance because they see it all over uh, the place. And so we, we're looking for other ways to try and uh, prevent uh, these exposures. We know that regulation works, and we know this historically. This is one classic example of how regulation has helped decrease the lead burden in the population. So this, was, uh, this is a triumph uh, of public health uh, with some caveats. Um, what you see is when uh, th these are the lead levels uh, in children uh, in 1980 or so. And what you see is that when uh, these uh, regulations that said you can no longer have lead in gasoline, you can no longer have lead in commercial paint, um, you see a dramatic drop in the amount of lead in the population. Um, and so this is a triumph in that we've decreased children's uh, lead levels significantly. We haven't gotten it to zero, which is where a lot of the public health folks want to see it, because we know that there's no lead level that, uh, that uh, is safe for children. 
One of the acts that's uh, highly uh, sort of talked about a lot in toxicology is the Toxic Substances Control Act, which was implemented in 1976 and got, uh, at the time, uh, was thought to have uh, a variety of benefits. But what turned out was that of the, you know, so about 60,000 or so chemicals that were on, uh, that were out in uh, circulation at that time, most of those were grandfathered in from being exempt from this particular regulation. Things like a Asbestos uh, were exempt, um, and so you see the, st- the the numbers there. Very few of the chemicals that were actually uh, supposed to be regulated were. This, this would be regulated by the EPA. In 2016, uh, this uh, was updated, uh, and there were some pretty big changes to it. Um, and so we'll see how things go with the changes in the administration uh, as to how much this will be enforced. You asked about Europe, and so, you know, what, one of the things that from a public health standpoint and a regulatory standpoint that we point to is Europe. One of the things that we do in the United States is a chemical will be put on the market, and then once it causes a problem, then we'll study it in that population, and then we'll go back to the regulators and say, maybe we should pull this off the market. What, uh, what is uh, the REACH Act that Europe has is requires the manufacturers to do those studies first before it's unleashed on the population. Uh, it started in 2017 and is being implemented to, to 2018. A common uh, principle that we look at from public health and from a toxicology standpoint is a precautionary principle, uh, which is opposite of wh- what is done in sort of a regulatory fashion for environmental chemicals. Uh, but which says, you know, I'm not sure what's in this stuff, so I don't want to have people exposed to it, as opposed to what we currently do, which is let me get the stuff out on the market and in the population, and then if it causes problems, then I'll look to get it off the market. So public health uh, and and the health and scientific folks uh, like to go by this precautionary principle and would like to have this instituted. So we're, we're down to my last couple slides. I'm going to give you the top ten. I, I probably should have done them in David Letterman style and, and reversed them, but we're going to go from one to ten rather than ten to one. I got these uh, from one of my colleagues at, the, uh, at that um, program for reproductive health and the environment, and I think uh, they're done really well. Um, so what you'll see is uh, what we recommend, but you also see a cost because I know that uh, all of this comes with an associated cost. I generally don't tell parents who don't have a whole lot of means you need to go out and buy organic. What I'll tell them is get some fresh fruits and vegetables and, you know, let's wash them um, because I'd much rather see parents and children eating fresh fruits and vegetables than say, you know, I, I really couldn't afford that, Doc, because it was organic. It was twice as much as what we bought. Um, so reducing the, the – I probably should change this too let's just reduce the pesticide residue. There are different um, uh, resources out there, and what you'll see here is something called the Dirty Dozen by the Environmental Working Group, which looks at the 12 most contaminated fruits and vegetables. Uh, And so as a consumer, you can go and look and say, you know, I don't really think... I'm going to get non-organic strawberries. But I might get non-organic um, bananas because, you know, those don't have as much uh, a burden. The second is don't eat plastic. And, again, this is a cost issue. I think more important is don't microwave plastic uh, because this allows things to leach out. Uh, there are different plastics that people uh, will recommend from sort of a health perspective, and, and they're listed there. Um, so if you, if you have that ability and you have that control, that's one of the things we recommend. 
this is that, you know, tr trying not to microwave plastic uh, so that you don't have that leaching uh, of things like BPA into your food. So we tell people to leave, uh, particularly um, women of reproductive age, to eat low mercury fish um, because uh, there's some biomagnification, some of the predator fish. Uh, and so, again, this can cost, uh, this can have a cost depending on what, where you're getting your fish. Uh, and we have a resource there of where you can look and see what type of fish have uh, mercury loads. Um, majority of the time I spend, you know, people say, oh, you're a toxicologist. Tell me about this antidote. I want to know about the technical piece. Uh, and I, most of my response to folks is, you know, if we can get some basic hygiene and basic uh, precaution and prevention going, I think that I find that much more interesting than when we have to give you a medicine, put you in the hospital, things like that. So washing your hands prior to eating sounds kind of like oh, my mom told me that a long time ago. Uh, why are you telling me that again, doc? Part of that is because all the things that we know that I've just talked to you about, lead, PCBs, PBDs, all those kind of things, that's a great vehicle to, uh, to get that into that absorption phase. So if we can get people to wash hands prior to eating, it's an important piece. Um, things like avoiding uh, things that have BPA or some of these uh, endocrine disruptors in them, uh, like carbonless receipts. Uh, so if you don't need it, don't take it. Uh, and we'll encourage cashiers to, can, to use gloves. Um, this is along those same lines as limiting the exposure to pesticides and chemicals in the home. One of the hygiene pieces that people will say is we'll have somebody who lives in a home that says, you know, I live in a house that I can't remediate uh, and things are falling apart. And I said, well, can you get a broom? And they say, yeah. And I said, well, then, then let's see if we can do some things about just getting some of the dust up. Um, particularly, um, can you, you know, can you make it damp? Uh, what we'll call sort of wet mopping. And the reason we say that is because if you've put some water on it, it will keep some of this dust from aerosolizing. And so I said, if you can get some water and, and, and you know, uh, a rag, that's one way to keep some of this stuff off the floor. And so we'll tell parents, you know, make sure that that's not, that dust isn't on the floor. Make sure your crib isn't close to a window or a place where you're having peeling paint, because those are all things that can be done, you know, generally for free. Uh, we have a safe cosmetics uh, link that's put out by California. Uh, you know, a lot of the cosmetics uh, have a variety of different things depending on where you get them. We have cosmetics from outside the United States that have lead in them. Uh, we've had cosmetics outside the United States that have mercury in them. And so those generally uh, are manufactured outside the U.S., but there are other things that will have some of these endocrine-disrupting pieces. And so if you go to the safe cosmetics program, you can see what's listed there. Uh, I talked about furniture foam uh, as being a source of things like uh, the flame retardant exposures. And so people say, oh, are you telling me i got to go buy a new couch? Do I have to go buy a new bed? And I'll generally tell them, you know, that's usually out of the reach of most people. And so I'll say, make sure that it's in good working order. When you have a couch that has a big hole in it, make sure that that gets covered up or that that, that, um, that cushion gets covered up because those are the things uh, that we know are allowing this stuff to get exposed. Can you still get some of these things through the cushion? Yeah, you can. Uh, is some of this stuff still aerosolized? Sure. There have been studies looking at the types of different materials. So if you have leather versus, um, uh, you know, fibrous material, leather tends to, to not allow some of the stuff to escape as much. 
Not surprisingly, a toxicologist at UCSF is going to tell you don't smoke. Um, there's a variety of things that occur both within the cigarette smoke but also when people are lighting up that allows things to heat up. Um, we, this, with the new fad of vaping and electronic cigarettes, it's just another delivery mechanism to get a variety of different toxins to people. And so we'll encourage not smoking but also not vaping because we'll be told, well, this will keep me from smoking. If you look at the data, most of the vaping is just a gateway to getting people onto tobacco. Uh, and then avoid uh, lead if you can for a variety of different things like the way you remediate the home uh, or the way you clean. So I've talked at you now for over, over an hour, uh, and I'll stop there and open it up to questions. Thank you. <laughs> So um, the, your question is in terms of toxicity. Um, well, so part of what we, I would say is uh, the, the GMO literature um, from a toxic standpoint uh, is still being evaluated. So I, 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 wouldn't, I, I would say the precautionary principle probably overrides that more than the evidence that I have that, that it's problematic. Um, and so... Uh, because of that, I think most of the public health folks now would agree with them is that we would say, you know, let's wait on uh, or, or at least label this so people can make some uh, decisions about this. Uh, because, again, we introduce these things before they're fully vetted and before we fully know the science. It's difficult, you know, from a scientific standpoint because... Uh, unlike a lot of the studies that we do in toxicology, nobody will allow me, none of the, the um, human research committees or any of the ethical committees will allow me to randomly select people and poison them and then see what I, how to treat them. And so a lot of our studies end up being us trying to in, interpret what's been done to an animal or what happened in, with an accidental exposure. Uh, and so, so with those things, I think the precautionary principle is uh, what we rely on. What about phytoestrogens in soy? Oh, so I, uh, it would be the same thing. I, don't have, I, I would tell you I don't have as much um, data on, on phytoestrogens being uh, either an antioxidant or problematic. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, so permethrin, which I showed. Um, oh, oh, sorry. So the question was, uh, what, what about uh, hormone disrupting chemicals in pesticides and uh, things like uh, uh, dog collars and things like that? So the, uh, the slide I showed with permethrin, permethrin is a common uh, insecticide that's used uh, in, uh, in a variety of things uh, and is known to at least have issues with, uh, with Parkinson's disease, and we do think it has some, uh, some endocrine-disrupting uh, uh, problems. And so uh, we, again, depending on part of the issue uh, is, is where someone is working where their exposure is. Uh, if someone's going to a malaria country, let's say, uh, then the risk-benefit becomes what is it, you know, am I going to tolerate malaria for a short period of time or am I going to tolerate a chronic permethrin exposure? Uh, So in an ideal world, uh, they wouldn't have the exposure, but we do that risk balance. 
the answer is no. Um, so unlike, you know, uh, so let me, I'll repeat the question, which is, is there a quick and easy way to uh, screen the supplements for things like lead? And the answer is no. Um, the reason is, is the supplement industry or the supplements uh, themselves look very similar to, from a consumer standpoint, medications, pharmaceuticals, which are pretty highly regulated. Uh, they have uh, good laboratory practices, good manufacturing practices, things that they have to adhere to. The same is not true for uh, supplements. There's uh, an act that was uh, put together called the Dietary Supplement and Health Act. It's an acronym is DSHEA, uh, which basically said uh, all the supplements that are put on the market don't need to be regulated unless they cause a problem. And then if you can prove they cause a problem, then we'll pull them off the market. So uh, there isn't a quick and easy way. And so when we, when I ask someone what they take from the sup- what they take from their supplements, I, sometimes I get all kinds of different answers. But I have no reassurance and what they're getting is uh, free of any kind of contaminant. Uh, there's a study that was done by a toxicologist down in, at L.A. Uh, Public uh, Health that asked people, tell me who you have uh, confidence in when you're looking to buy uh, natural supplements. Do you ask your doctor? Do you ask your herbalist? And uh, the number one uh, person that they relied on was the salesperson in the, uh, in the store. Well, you can imagine most of those sales folks don't get uh, any information on how these things are uh, manufactured or produced. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Yeah. So we we generally tell people soap uh, soap and water or soap uh, or water on its own. You know. So our you've heard this before, I'm sure, but the solution to pollution is dilution. And so what we will tell people is, you know, soap and water are just soap uh, by itself. Um, uh, vinegar, I think, is fine. It hasn't been shown to cause any problems from a health perspective. Uh, from you know, it's, it's sort of in the dilute form. And same with hydrogen peroxide. Uh, but we usually tell people just water. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Is it safe? It's, yeah, it's generally safe. You know, the, the, the way that we approach that is how much and how long is this exposure going on for? Um, one uh, bottle of water from a plastic bottle is hard to, hard to make much uh, of anything about. Someone who chronically has these exposures of anything, water, food, and otherwise, uh, from these plastic sources is getting something, you know, uh, like these hormone-disrupting chemicals. Uh, and so, and the concern that we have is not that one pill or that one exposure, but this long-term exposure, particularly in people uh, who are at most risk, which is usually uh, a developing child. Uh, so which water? So um, in, uh, here in, in San Francisco, and I would say the same is true for Alameda County, uh, the water that you get out of the tap is about as good as you're going to get anywhere in the country. Uh, it comes from the Hetch Hetchy, which has basically no contamination, comes through uh, pretty uh, uh, pristine pipes. The only time that there may be an issue is the piping that's in your home. The pi- the, once the, and I've met with PUC on a, on a similar but separate discussion, and and we've looked at their data, which is out on their website. If you go to the San Francisco Water Commission, you can look at their water data. It looks great. Now, if you have one question would be, you know, what's in the home and how is that water getting brought into you? But, um, I, you know, from a cost-benefit perspective, water coming from your tap, I think, is, is uh, just as effective and safe as any other water. Yes, sir. Well, um, 
programs that, that we worry about uh, are things that, that affect children. So the EPA has a number of programs that look at uh, the environmental protection uh, or, or protection of children uh, and the environment. Uh, and so I, I don't know of any uh, thing that's going to be cut, but though that's one of the places that, that you know, as I read in the news, uh, 50% of the EPA budget is going to be cut. Most of the time when I see governmental budgets being cut, the first thing they go for is children. Um, and so I suspect, and what I worry about is programs which aren't that you know well funded to begin with are going to go away. And so when I'm out, uh, you know, sort of campaigning for you know, if I have uh, when I become king uh, for a day, what would I you know where would I put our resources? There's a lot of money that's put into you know. Uh, uh, novel medications and novel drugs and things like that, which I think is fine. I would argue that there should be more money put into basic prevention that would uh, prevent the need for some of these novel medications. I don't. We don't filter our water. Um, there are so we've had uh, uh, a number of filters that were looked at, particularly after the uh, Flint uh, issue, and there are filters that meet EPA requirements. I don't have a particular uh, favorite, uh, Brita or otherwise. Some of the charcoal filters, I think, uh, work fine. Um, for the water that's uh, in San Francisco, uh, I tell people I, there's no need for uh, for a filter. Ma'am, I think you, sorry, you were in the red. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, we get questions on odor. You know, so odor causes has its own uh, sort of it hits the limbic system, the part of the brain that has pretty strong reaction. Uh, we had uh, we had a, a around the time Flint was going on, there was a big uh, natural gas. Uh, release in Aliso Canyon in Southern California. And we had uh, like 15,000 or more households that were exposed to natural gas day in and day out. And they were get, we were getting a lot of reports of uh, health effects from uh, the smell of natural gas. Uh, and so the odor itself can cause health issues just because of the, the way it affects uh, the central nervous system. Uh, but yeah, usually uh, if someone's able to smell these kind of things, we have a concern that we use that as a form of exposure. Uh, they're regulated in the sense that uh, in order to get them on onto the market, uh, they'll have uh, some regulation there. But there are a variety of things that are put in uh, that uh, we know uh, can be problematic. So some of these hormone-disrupting chemicals are in there. Uh, but they will, let's say, provide a good perfume uh, and, or provide uh, you know, a pleasant smell. Uh, but we know that that can cause issue. I'm trying to think, do, do we ever induce fever? I can't think of any time that would use that to modify metabolism or to, let's say, speed up metabolism. Or, One, I'm or sorry. Slow or slow down. Yeah, I can't think of anything. So for the most part, when we're looking at those four things, the absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, the thing that I have probably the least control over is metabolism, other than trying to block it completely. So I, there's very few things that I can do that I can think of that will either that will speed that up or even modify it. Um, so we don't use temperature uh, for toxic exposures that I can I can't think of any. Um, and even do we use uh, in some other medical and some other settings we'll use low temperature for people, uh, but not from a toxic standpoint that I can think of. Is there a question? Yeah. 
Um, I, I don't recommend um, dehumidifiers for mycotoxins. Well, usually what we'll do with damp indoor airspace, which is really the concern, is if you have uh, a uh, water intrusion into your home, if we get that solved, then the growth of black mold and mold itself uh, it will, will resolve on its own. Now, we'll say, sure, let's get it remediated, let's get it out of there. But uh, we generally won't recommend uh, humidifiers or, or putting anything in. If anything, we'll recommend ventilation, which means opening your doors, opening your windows. Um, you had a question about sulfates. Yeah, laurel sulfate or something in shampoos? Uh, so that's not one that, that, that strikes me. Some of the sulfates that we see are generally in things like red wine we'll see uh, sulfates where people will have reactions to sulfates. Yeah, so what there, there is a chemical property where things are more uh, like things more like fat, and then there are chemicals that like things that are more like water. Uh, and so there is a concern, uh, and I would say, I, wouldn't, I don't know that valid is the right term, but generally when we say people are, uh, let's say someone has lost weight and had the toxins uh, released, uh, we'll, we'll find from an overall health perspective that that's a good thing. Um, there haven't been reports of you know, someone having dramatic weight loss and then having uh, an intoxication, let's say. And so uh, we've, I've been approached about things like lipo, like uh, maybe I should, will you approve my liposuction because that'll get these toxins out of me. Uh, and, and I'll say, you know, there's no evidence for that. Uh, I'm happy for you to lose weight because I think overall that is, is a positive piece, but it's not a source of intoxication uh, and hasn't been. So the, the connection to Alzheimer's with aluminum came in uh, dialysis patients. And so what happened was there was a period of time where people who were getting dialysis, uh, the water came from, uh, from not a, uh, a controlled source. Uh, and so what was happening was aluminum was getting leached out of the dialysis unit. And so they were finding people who were having higher levels of uh, Alzheimer's because they were having this stuff directly plugged in to their veins because they were trying to clean their, clean their blood. Um, I haven't seen any uh, good evidence that shows that some of the aluminum uh, that's out there in commercial products is causing this. There is concern for something called, uh, for some of these nanoparticles. Uh, so from a molecular standpoint, uh, a nanoparticle of aluminum is just a molecule. It's just, you know, one, one molecule. However, if you were to chain them together in a certain way, some of these things can be directly absorbed. So there's concern about uh, direct um, central nervous system effect from these things called nanoparticles. We have one minute. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I don't know if they've actually if they've stopped that. I think they have. Um, the flame retardants aren't that effective, number one, uh, and, and that's been I think is pretty well uh, described. Uh, and two, the safety issue uh, is some of the long-term aspects that we talked about. Uh, and so, no longer do they have to have that 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 same flame retardant. Not true for the um, the. Uh, well, actually, it is true. In, Cal in 2012, we started, we stopped uh, doing that in the foam, uh, in the foaming of things like couches and stuff as well. It's uh, um, most of the evidence I don't know is species specific. It's generally on how they're raised and what they're exposed or how they're raised. And so, uh, chicken versus, uh, from a toxic standpoint, chicken, chicken versus pork versus beef. Uh, I don't think has been looked at. It's generally in the settings that they're raised in. Um, and so that's where most of the concern is for their exposures. Yeah, well, so uh, it's interesting. The Monterey Bay uh, sea otters are, are sort of a... Um, uh, 
used, at, at, not used, but are a marker for some of the exposures uh, in humans. I'm not familiar with that particular study, but uh, we did, uh, when I was in training, go down to Monterey Bay uh, and specifically talk to some of the wildlife folks who mentioned, you know, some of the exposures that the that they were seeing in sea otters would then we would then translate into humans. It's not just sea otters. There are a variety of different things. There was a, a famous um, contamination in Japan called Minamata Bay. There was a bay that had some mercury that was uh, in, a, in, uh, in this bay. This bay was used by the locals for everything, their food supply, their drinking water. Uh, and what was uh, originally first noticed going back was that uh, all these cats were walking funny. They were falling over and having trouble walking. Turned out that was the first marker of this uh, huge mercury contamination uh, for these folks. So we know that uh, animals tend to be some of the first uh, um, first exposed. And you know the classic is sort of the canary in the coal mine for carbon monoxide. So three questions there. Uh, I couldn't answer the IGF-1 without um, probably doing a little more data digging for you. Uh, the growth hormone uh, thing has been a concern uh, because it does mimic uh, and look like uh, hormones, particularly in children. There's a uh, what sort of well-known uh, case that happens not just with growth hormone, but uh, with when sometimes when beef um, or uh, different animals are slaughtered uh, inappropriately, such that some of the thyroid gland is still uh, within the beef. And so there have been uh, cases where children will have these these sort of hypermetabolic states, which is found out later to be because of uh, improper slaughtering of the animals. And so sort of along the lines of that growth hormone. And then your third question was? Was uh, ultra-low doses, they don't um, get the body's defenses going and are going under the radar? Is, is that true? Does that happen? Uh, yeah, we think it does occur. Um, it, it, we think that there are, are uh, there's a couple of uh, different scenarios where that can occur. One is that the dose is actually unknown, and so uh, it may actually be a high dose that just no one's monitoring for. Uh, so that is one case, uh, one way that occurs. Uh, radiation is a classic sort of uh, low dose or no dose uh, where you can get very little uh, amounts of radiation and then have uh, uh, cancer that it goes uh, that can occur, and that, that's along those um, dose response curves I was showing you. Um, so, yeah, it does occur, I think, um, and it, it, it depends on both the host, meaning the person who's exposed, and the chemical that was being uh, used uh, that has that sort of dynamic interaction. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.